Today, the French people and the government treats us like heroes. Uh, it's nice, but before the epidemic, we was nothing. And I think after, we'll, we will be nothing too. Welcome to The Women, a production of iHeartRadio and myself, Rose Reed. Where I live in New York, it was announced that the pandemic had reached its peak, and then there was another flare-up. The governor has made a plea to public health care workers across the country that if their community is not experiencing a crisis, to please come to New York to assist. So far, our state has seen over 11,000 deaths. The Los Angeles mayor has announced that large gatherings, like sporting events and concerts, may be postponed until 2021. And we're at least 18 months away from a vaccine. In this episode, we'll hear from hospital staff, epidemiologists, biosecurity experts from around the world who are working tirelessly to play their role to relieve patients and the workers of this crisis. We're going to be looking at the origins of this virus, how it's impacting us socially, and the toll that it's taking on healthcare providers. We're going to start by asking, how did this virus really begin? What we found is that there are coronaviruses that are very similar to this one that are circulating in bats and circulating in pangolins. They look a little bit like anteaters, but with scales. Oh, yeah, they're pretty weird looking. <laughs> and what is the impact of social distancing? And I do think that with epidemics, we do see a gender inequality issue rise up and make itself even more clear than it usually is. And what does this battle look like on the front lines to women across the globe? Nothing was anticipated by the French government, so we are poor in special masks, overcoats, gloves, hydroalcoholic solution to wash our hands, and I'm very angry at it. And we'll check back in with Antoinette Ward, the nurse practitioner we heard from a few episodes back at the beginning of the lockdown. She created and is leading testing for COVID-19 at a major hospital in Atlanta. It's a lot. My dad calls me every day and he wants to know, you know, how am I feeling? Am I checking my temperature? What's going on? And like, you know, he, he just, he's very worried. The coronavirus was first detected in Wuhan, China at the very end of this past year. And in Basel, Switzerland, molecular biologist Emma Hodcroft has been sequencing the genetic coding of the coronavirus since the outbreak began, observing its mutations as it travels across the world. I'm Emma Hodcroft. I'm in Basel, Switzerland, and I'm a molecular epidemiologist at the University of Basel. So I work on NextStrain, which is a program that looks at the genetic material of the virus and lets us track it through time and through space. At NextStrain, we've been tracking the coronavirus and the genetic changes that it's had since the 12th of January. Emma's work can show if you contracted the virus from someone in Seattle or China or your neighbor. So with, with the differences that we can see in the genetics of the virus, we can tell the difference between a virus that has come from someone who was infected in China and the virus of someone who was infected right here in their local community. And this makes a big difference in the type of response that local health authorities might then implement. Can you describe how you quote unquote track a virus? We actually only use samples that have been sequenced. So what this means is that their genetic material has been taken out and we can look at these genetic differences. 
The key thing here is that we can actually look for little tiny changes in that genetic, in those genetic um, sequences. Um, we call them mutations, but what we can look at is if two viruses have the same mutation or the same little typo, then they must have come from the same place where that an, an ancestor, a, a father, if you might say, or a mother that also had that mutation. So we're able to say that these viruses are more closely related. Then if another virus doesn't have that mutation or typo, we would say it's it's more distantly related. And by doing this many, many times over all the samples that we have, we're able to draw connections between all the samples that have been sequenced. So at the beginning, for example, all of our samples came from China and they all looked really similar. So this told us that this virus only jumped from animals to humans like once or maybe a couple of times. It has like a really, a really um, sharp point where it jumped from animals to humans. And then as time passed, we did start getting cases of coronavirus pop up around the world, kind of in January and February. These were really isolated. And from the genetics, we could tell they looked really similar to those early Chinese samples. And this confirmed that these were people who'd been to China, gotten infected there, and then come back to their own countries. And this is reassuring for health authorities because it tells you that, yes, you've had a case that's imported, but if you could contain these cases, you would have the epidemic under control because the, it's not being transmitted onward in your community. I don't think I understood that this virus came from animals. Do we know more about that? Yeah, so we we haven't traced the exact origins of the current coronavirus, but we have a lot of good evidence. So scientists have gone out and sampled animals in the market where the, some of the first few cases came from, and also wild animals from the surrounding area. And what we found is that there are coronaviruses that are very similar to this one that are circulating in bats and circulating in pangolins, which are these really interesting mammals that have scales instead of fur. They're and called pangolins? They, they look a little bit like anteaters, but with scales. Oh. Yeah, they're pretty weird looking. <laughs> and I don't mean to sound ignorant, but how does a virus from a bat or a penguin get to a human? So a lot of this happens in in these or it can happen in these types of animal markets that are more common in Asia. It's simply a matter of opportunity um, in these places. It's usually quite crowded and they often, for example, these animals are packed tightly in cages and humans can be near them for really long periods of time. And so this just provides an opportunity that the virus has. It can jump from an animal to a human through the animal coughing or sneezing or maybe when the humans are, are slaughtering the animals to eat. Um, and if this happened, if the human was just visiting the animal, you know, once a day or once a week, then the chance the virus would have to transmit would be really low. But when we have humans and animals really living right next to each other, working right next to each other for long periods, we increase the number of opportunities that a virus has to jump into people. And so that provides this kind of this, this possibility for a virus to then jump and start transmitting in humans. And how is coronavirus acting different than other viruses? So coronavirus in itself, it isn't necessarily acting different, but there's a couple of things that have made it the pandemic that it is today. So first, the fact that we know you can have it and be asymptomatic 
or at least that you can transmit it before you develop symptoms, this makes it so hard to contain the virus because people really have no indication that they might have it. And other people also don't know that you might have it because you look and you act perfectly well. This means that things like screening, temperature checks, and just asking people with coughs to stay home won't be enough because asymptomatic people will continue to transmit. For the new coronavirus, it's never circulated in our population before, so we're all really susceptible to it. Our immune systems don't recognize it. And of course, as we all know, we don't have a vaccine. So that makes this virus more dangerous because none of us have a protection. So these two combined things, the fact that we don't have any protection against the virus and the fact that the virus spreads while it's asymptomatic, make it a pretty hefty beast to contend with as we're discovering. But it was this early detection through the genetic sequencing that let us see that this community transmission was happening. But if we empower people by making testing free and widely available and fast, then they have the information they need to make the right decisions, which not only benefit themselves, but benefit everyone by cutting off those early transmissions. And that's really informative for local health authorities in order to figure out what steps are going to be most useful for trying to contain that viral spread. Community transmission shows the importance of testing and testing at scale, because it's the asymptomatic carriers who are making this virus an epidemic. And right now, we have no way of gathering the information to help us make decisions for opening up the economy and resuming our lives. If we could just discern, okay, these people have the antibodies and it's safe for them to go back to work. Or we could be creating a new set of jobs, ramping up the infrastructure for widespread testing. And there are epidemiologists who are asking, why are these tests so hard to get? And why are they so hard to scale? Why is it that the United States, which has the most advanced scientific research community in the world, why is it that you can't test at scale when South Korea and Japan can? Why? People need to be asking that question. Ryan McIntyre is a biosecurity expert based in Sydney, Australia. I work at the University of New South Wales at the Kirby Institute, which is an infectious diseases research institute. And I work on emerging infectious diseases, um, vaccinology, personal protective equipment and epidemic control. It's important because epidemic diseases increase in size very rapidly, as we're seeing uh, all over the world. So you have to actually implement interventions very quickly and decisively to control epidemics. When you see what's going on right now with our pandemic, what do you think from your experience or your research is, re is really resonating with you right now? The WHO is telling us you have to test, 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 that you have to test as extensively as possible to make sure you identify everybody who's potentially infectious. But, you know, in the US there were problems with the testing and um, testing is still very restricted, the ability, the capacity to test widely as it is in Australia, and that is um, concerning. And I'm not sure why countries like South Korea and Japan were, and China were able to test at massive scale and we can't manage it in the U.S. and Australia. I don't understand why. Rhino has done extensive research on the effectiveness of wearing masks in a medical setting, and her work really focuses on what protects healthcare workers the most. So um, my trials showed that a respirator 
is more uh, actually protects healthcare workers and that we couldn't identify evidence of surgical masks protecting. They're also called N95 respirators or P2 masks. Um, they, they look similar, but they are designed to fit around the face and create a seal so that no air can get in through the sides. And they are regulated on their filtration capacity, which surgical masks are not. So they have to um, filter more than 95% of airborne particles. The results were controversial because they went against the, um, ex the ideology that was prevalent and is still prevalent in the hospital infection control um, area, <clears throat> um, which is that you don't need a respirator, a mask, a surgical mask is enough for a doctor or a nurse. You don't really need a respirator. Um, and we saw that play out through Ebola when, you know, the US CDC recommended just surgical masks for doctors and nurses where someone, but while still recommending a respirator for someone working in a lab, which is um, inconsistent because a clinical healthcare worker is at much more risk in a much more unpredictable setting. And what's one thing that's bringing you relief right now? Relief? <laughs> yeah. Do you have like a no, guilty pleasure, like a TV show or chocolate or anything like that? I'm pretty much working from very early in the morning till late at night nonstop and reading all the literature that comes out, trying to understand as much as I can as we get new knowledge. Um, and my phone is ringing off the hook from early morning till late at night. There's a shortage of masks and other personal protective equipment, or PPE, and folks are being asked to reuse their equipment or to reuse masks, make masks at home, or use a bandana or cloth. Ultimately, we're asking someone to make a sacrifice. The governor of New York has ordered that all residents must wear a mask when outside of their homes. As testing is widely unavailable for us to safely and slowly resume our lives, we're relying on social distancing to flatten the curve. But how long will this take? And what will reopening things look like? And how is social distancing impacting women at home? That's after the break. My name is Dr. Saskia Popescu, and I am in Phoenix, Arizona. So I try to prevent the spread of healthcare-associated infections. But I also do a lot of work around preparing hospitals for biological events, and we call that biopreparedness. Dr. Saskia Popescu is a senior infection prevention epidemiologist, well-versed in biosecurity. She has a PhD in biodefense and was on the front lines of the measles outbreak and part of the response to fight Ebola. And I think the biggest thing that I always worry about is, you know, Disneyland is closed right now. And it is so critical, though, when that reopens, that there is understanding and awareness for just because it's open doesn't mean you get to go there when you're sick suddenly, that the concern isn't gone. <laughs> and we still need to practice those infection control measures. It's, it's because I, I've seen it happen where we don't do that and that messaging doesn't happen and people don't follow that. It's, it's about the messaging during and after. And how long should we be planning to be socially distant for? That's a tough question. I'm hoping not that long, but realistically, and this is probably one of the bigger messaging issues that we're having, this is a marathon. This isn't a sprint. And I'd rather people anticipate that, especially mentally, and just kind of brace for disruptions. So it's it's going to be a little while, though. New York has announced that it is extending its sheltering-in-place protocols until May 15th. 
Experts are hesitant to give a date when we will begin to go back to life as normal, saying it could be another two months or it could just be a really, really slow transition going back to normal. When we think of a prolonged period of time where kids are out of school, folks are out of work, families are at home, there are additional layers of complexity that add up. And I do think that with epidemics, we do see a gender inequality issue rise up and make itself even more clear than it usually is. Dr. Seema Yasmin is the director of the Health Communication Initiative at Stanford University. And before that, she worked at the CDC, where she investigated disease outbreaks. I am Dr. Seema Yasmin, and I first trained as a doctor, then became a disease detective, and then trained as a journalist because I'm really passionate about getting science and health stories out to as many people as possible. So much of your work has highlighted the work of women. What are you thinking about in terms of the burden of this health crisis falling on the shoulders of women, whether women in the community, women in the home, or women in the healthcare field? So even just thinking about school closures, which we're seeing a lot of across the state, that has an inordinate impact on women because we've seen that actually in previous pandemics and epidemics too because guess who the burden of childcare falls on so i think a lot about that burden but then i also think of the incredible role that women have as change makers in their communities as beacons of hope as community organizers as matriarchs and in fact at a time of crisis it's thinking about those kinds of women that i know or that i hear about or that i got to write about in my book it's that that gives me optimism and hope And in terms of women making different choices because they have found themselves in positions of leadership, what have you seen uh, as a response to this epidemic, pandemic, that has really impressed you? In terms of women's leadership? Unfortunately, I mean, we look at the coronavirus task force and it's so it's so male dominated and i think a lot of times we we see men not listening to women and not listening to a perspective that sometimes is more holistic and thinks more about the gendered aspects and thinks more about children um but there are women in in phenomenal leadership roles i think about nancy Masonia at the cdc who unfortunately really has her work cut out for her because even as she i think the same day that she was saying to us on March 6th to get ready for this to get worse and to cause disruption, there were male officials who were saying the opposite and trying to discount her expertise. And we see that over and over again. How are healthcare workers balancing being at home and managing the peak of the pandemic? That's after the break. Many public health care workers are being called upon as if soldiers being drafted to battle. Uh, my name is Stephanie. I live in Plumer in the south of Brittany in France. I'm a home care nurse since 10 years and before I worked in an hospital. I love my job because I'm in contact with people every day and there are many old people who are alone and they only see me in a day, so I bring them some company. Stephanie is a nurse in a retirement community in Brittany, the most northwestern part of France. She believes that her government has not prepared the healthcare workers to confront COVID-19 properly or safely. 
the atmosphere has changed because everybody, patients and caregivers is stressed with this epidemic. The people I care for are old and so more fragile and we have few means to protect them. I do my best to protect my patients, to protect me, and it's very difficult. I'm very sad today to go working, and I think a lot to my colleagues who work in hospitals, they are overwhelmed. Today, the French people and the government treats us like heroes. Uh, it's nice, but before the epidemic, we was nothing, and I think after we'll we will be nothing too. So it's very sad. All the nurses are stressed and tired and at the, at the moment uh, is the worst period of work since I was a nurse. All the nurses in France today are very angry about them, to, to, to the government and uh, politic people who do nothing for us. Stephanie believes that the lack of equipment reflects an overall disregard for the individual's welfare, both the provider and the patient. A few miles from where I live, Brooklyn Hospital is reporting that a third of their staff is out sick. Healthcare workers are extra vulnerable because they have increased exposure to catch, carry, and pass the coronavirus. When we aired our first episode about women on the front lines fighting the coronavirus on March 17th, we heard from Antoinette Ward, the nurse who created and is leading COVID-19 testing at a clinic in a major hospital in Atlanta. She's both treating the influx of patients and balancing kids at home. My husband's now working from home. My kids, you know, are still home. I don't know if we like each other as much as we thought we did. <laughs> <laughs> One big change that she has seen is her patient demographic. Like many hospitals around the country, they're reporting intensive care patients aren't just people over 65 with pre-existing conditions. They're seeing healthy 40-year-olds who are being intubated. And Antoinette describes how she treated an entire family. Yesterday, when I worked in the emergency department, we had an entire family come in. Um, initially, we did not plan to test them because we thought they looked very well. But when we had a conversation with them, we realized that we needed to test them. So we're, you know, that was a nine-year-old, I believe a 12-year-old, and then a 39-year-old dad that, that came with them. I have to say that I'm surprised that washing your face and changing your clothes when you come home hasn't been added to um, the list of, you know, wash your hands and wipe your surfaces. As, as customary practices. You're right about that. And I do that. I actually, and that's because I'm a healthcare provider. I come home um, most of the time. I do take off my scrubs, definitely my shoes in my garage. And I have a special basket that I put them in. And then I walk straight through my house to the shower. And I generally, you know, I've done this for years. I always just go straight to my shower when I get in from home. So I think a lot of healthcare providers do it and a lot of non-healthcare providers will probably start to do it also if you've been out in the public and not sure about your exposure, just come home and wash up. 
Um, does that mean that you have like a special robe in the garage that you can walk through the house in? Or are you just in the buff walking through the house? I, I, I'm pretty much in the buff. My family don't pay me any money. <laughs> I do have a robe. My laundry room is right outside of the garage door. So I do have something I can grab if I need to. But no, it, it's just what mom does. <laughs> Next week, I'm talking to Stacey Abrams about love, friendship, and how COVID-19 will further impact voter suppression. Our opportunity is to hold our leaders accountable to their highest and best selves by saying, give us the ballot. And the worry is that, unfortunately, the courts and our leaders will not protect us from the worst instincts of politics. Stacey is on the shortlist for Joe Biden's pick for a running mate, and she may be our future vice president. But her priority right now isn't about who's on the ballot, but ensuring that every American can cast one. And so for every lost friendship or weakened bond, I can point to new bonds that have forced me to remain open to the opportunity of new people in my life because I didn't know who I had until this crucible of an election really showed me. The Women is a production of iHeartRadio and myself, your host, Rose Reed. Holly Fry is our executive producer. This episode was mixed by Adrian Lilly. Special thanks to Nora Kipnis and Gail Reed. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I have support messages of friends, colleagues, and even people I don't know. It warms my heart and it gives courage to continue to work and to protect and to care my patients. And uh, fortunately, they are good people.